Good morning. If you're here and you're visiting, I didn't say this earlier, but if you're here and you're visiting, we're glad that you're here. Uh, welcome to Valley. Um, glad to have you as a part of worship with us this morning. We'd love to continue to find ways to get you connected in the life of our church. A um, couple ways you can communicate that. There's a card in the, the, man, every time. What are those things called? The pew pockets. Golly, one of these days I'll get it. I want to call them envelope somethings, and I don't know why every week. In the pew pockets, um, there are cards you can take and you can fill out, put some information on it. Let us know how we might connect with you. Um, or send an email, which would be much easier for me than needing to write something down. Not to mention you'd actually be able to read it. Um, send an email to connections at valleybaptistchurch.org, uh, and our folks will be able to connect with you there. But we'd love to have you connect with uh, things that we're doing. Uh, if you fill out that card, typically you drop it in the offering plate. The fact that they already went by means we're not going to take a second offering unless that's a good idea. Those of you that brought extra money, maybe we should do that. Um, if you'll just hand that to me, uh, I'll get it to our connection strategy team at the end of the service. Um, but we are glad that you're here. Um, as we continue a series that we have been in at Valley that we're in for a few more weeks, I'm not certain exactly when we'll end it yet, but we're going to go a little bit longer as we talk about what it means uh, about being church uh, at home. Um, in the book of Genesis, we find... Oh, and Blake, thanks again. I'm glad you're here. Uh, thank you for being here and leading us. Um, yeah, really excited that you're here. Wendy thought about actually skipping her day away and coming back just because Blake was going to be here. Told her that wasn't a good idea. She needed to go away. She needed a day. Um, but she too was excited you were here. So thanks for being here with us, Tara. Thank you for letting him come join us. Um, in Genesis, we find these really interesting creation stories. And Genesis 1 um, tells the story of creation. Genesis 2 tells the story of creation. And they differ a bit as they tell the story. But in it, they give us powerful illustrations of the incredible love that God has for people and for creation. And together, they paint this beautiful picture of a God that's too great to fully understand. A God that is too great to fully explain. A God that can't be fully described in just one story, or even just the two stories that are there. So we have this whole collection of stories and the law and poetry and letters so that we can get a greater grasp of who God is and of what God is doing and of the incredible love that God has for us. However, as we look at the creation stories, as we look at other stories in the scriptures... It's important that we are careful with the stories. Because if we're not careful, we can use them to say things that we wish were true or hope were true or even think are true as we give these texts a surface reading. But as we dive deeper in, we begin to find that there are other things that may be going on. So we have to be cautious with the stories as we read the stories. Just this week, as I read through Genesis 2 several times, preparing for it, um, I had that same issue. And I had a personal debate going on between myself as I was thinking about last week and what we talked about in the, the sermon being single. Um, I thought about the reality that last week I was in the small group with the teenagers, with our youth. Um, so I was in there with our students responding to some of the questions that came up from that and some of the other things that were going on. Uh, and we had a really great conversation. And as a part of that conversation, one of the things that I did, again, based on our sermon and in our sermon, we talked about the idea that living single is not a secondary option to being married. It was my hope that I was communicating that. 
And when I was in with the teenagers, we talked about being single and what that means and what that looks like. And they asked questions about dating. And we explored all kinds of things as we walked around that. And one of the things that I even did was apologize to them. Because it seems to me that the church often paints the picture that marriage is the ideal path for us to be on. I don't know that we always intend to do it, but I think that we communicate that, which is why last week I was trying to say being single is not a secondary option. There are great reasons that perhaps people are single. And what does it mean to live boldly into that and not be waiting for what comes next? So I apologize to them. And I talked about that. I think it puts incredible, unnecessary pressure on kids with regards to their life and their faith when they either intentionally or unintentionally have been convinced That the only right path for them in their faith is to pursue marriage. Now, I'm also not anti-marriage. And the goal today is not to bash marriage. But it's to recognize that either of these places that we live in as individuals, whether it be single or married, are valid and valuable and carry worth and incredible importance in the kingdom of God. So that's what I shared with them last week, and that's what I talked about in the sermon. And then as I read this passage, I began to have this internal debate, because in some ways, this passage seems like maybe it says something different than what I had said, different than what I had told them. Because the story tells us that as God interacted with creation, that the only time God found something that was not good was when man was alone. So the story tells us that God created a helper. God searched for a helper, that man needed an easer. That's the way way I think you say the Hebrew word, easer. It might be ezer, but I'm pretty sure it's easer. Man needed an easer. So God created animals, and he gave this man the responsibility to name all of these animals. But then the passage says in verse 20... He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. It wasn't good for man to be alone. So what happened? God created the woman. And if we read the the surface reading of this passage, it seems to me very easy for us to infer that if it wasn't good for the man to be alone, this first man, then surely it isn't good for us to be alone, us as people who are still here. And if that's the case, then we're all supposed to marry someone else because we're not supposed to be alone. So that's supposed to be the path that we're on. And it's easy to use this path and make an argument that it means that everyone should pursue marriage because apparently in the creation story, it wasn't good for this man to be alone. So God gave him a woman and they married. However, Before we go there, again, I did this internal debate this week. And then I looked a little more deeply at the passage and remembered, no, that's not what this text is about. That's not what the passage says, and it's part of the reason that we have to be careful with what it is that we're reading. Last week, as we talked about 1 Corinthians 7, we talked about the value of reading that letter in context. That we had to remember what was contextually happening. That that letter was written to a specific church in a specific place at a specific time in a specific culture. It was not written initially to Valley Baptist Church in Lutherville, Maryland in 2019. 
Now, it doesn't mean that there's not lots and lots and lots that we can learn from it, lots that we can take from it, lots that we can gather from it. But we have to remember that the, in, the initial audience, the, the primary recipient of that letter was not us. And that changes the way that we read the passage. The same thing has to happen with this Genesis passage, with the Genesis 2 passage. We have to remember that there was an original people that this was intended for, that this was written down for, so that it could be something that they came back to as their source of understanding who God was and what God was doing. And if you remember something that I mentioned last week, this this culture, this people, believed all people should get married. Do you remember last week that I talked about the reality that in the Hebrew language there was no word for bachelor? They didn't need one because a man went from living at home with mom and dad to getting married and then living with his wife. That was understood. The Jewish faith understood that especially men, but ideally all people would marry. So there was no reason to really talk about being single. And this passage was written into those people. And I think as we read the passage that it wasn't actually intended to contradict or to support the cultural assumptions that they had. It it didn't have the intention of doing either one. Instead, I think that the writing, that the text, that the teaching that is here existed to give them a deeper understanding of God's intention for this marriage that now came together, for this partnership that now existed. And if I'm right, then that means that instead of reading the passage in a way that says that all people should get married because being alone is somehow not good. That we would instead read it this way, that married people, and most of them already were, married people, this marriage is a beautiful and powerful partnership that you have committed yourself to living. And I think if we shift in that reading from the idea that everyone should get married to instead those that are and all of them would have been or nearly all. This is what it means to live into this commitment that you've made. And I think there's implications on us if we change that reading and read it in that light. Does anything I'm saying make sense right now? Because you're all giving me the blank face looks. I know some weeks you just do that, but are we there? Yeah. Maybe a little bit, not sure. If you have, if you're really confused by what I'm talking about, later we're going to encourage you to go to our small groups and Kathy will explain everything to you in that small group that I'm missing. I'm in trouble now. She's going to start throwing stuff at me. We do actually intentionally have a small group that talks about continuing the conversation. Not because Kathy has all the answers, but because the conversation is valuable for us. Because what are the implications of us reading this in that different light? What changes for us if we understand this, not so much as prescriptive, but descriptive of what was going on? Now, as we do so, we have to remember looking at the purposes of these stories. Again, the context of what's going on and remembering that the primary purpose of woman and man, the primary reason that God created this people was to exist in a partnership with God, to be in relationship with God, to have this mutual back and forth love between God and humans. And the primary lesson of Genesis 1 and 2 is first, God's love for people. But second, what it is that we have this opportunity to grasp is that out of God's love for people, we have been invited into partnership with God. 
So as Christians, as Christ followers, as the church, our primary commitment, our life motivation should be that you and I are married to Jesus. Single or married, that is the primary relationship that exists in our life. We are to live deeply married to the Savior. We have vowed our life to our Lord and Savior and friend, and nothing is to get in the way of this. It's part of the reason that as we look at 1 Corinthians 7, that Paul talks so much about the idea of of living single. Because in his understanding, it's easier to live fully committed to Jesus if a person is not married. Because there are distractions that come with marriage. There are responsibilities. There are new commitments. If a man chooses to become a husband, then he takes on new responsibilities and new commitments. And those can be a distraction to following after Jesus. If a woman chooses to become a wife, then she takes on new commitments and responsibilities. And those can become a distraction to her faithfully and fully following Jesus. Now, if we think about it in this way, it leans back again on Genesis 2. And this idea, not as prescription, but as explanation, as explanation of what it means to live life married. And the idea that it brings with it commitment and responsibility. In Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Discipleship Works, which you guys hear me mention all the time because it's been so valuable for, for me and for us as a church to rethink much of how we do life. But his, the work he has done on living single and living married are so valuable, so incredible that they have been a source for me for the last several years of looking back onto as I live my own married life, but also as I try and communicate what it means to live married and to live single. He does such a great job. And he says that if we are Married people, this is what it says, you must make marriage your first ambition, your first passion, and your loudest gospel message. Now, don't trip up on the word first. He uses the word first there, but don't trip up on that because he's not saying that our marriage becomes our first priority over and above our commitment to Jesus. That's an understood that he's already explained in his work, already explained in his book, that our first commitment is to Jesus. Otherwise, it's called idolatry. When we, when we lift our marriage up above our following Jesus, that's called idolatry and is clearly against what God has called us to do. But what Scazzaro says and what Genesis 2 is saying and what I believe 1 Corinthians 7 is saying is that marriage is to be our highest priority in life. Second only, not getting married, but if we are married, living married, our highest priority, second only to our relationship to Christ, our commitment to following after Jesus. And in Genesis 2, we watch as this first man was amazed at this new creation. As Genesis 2 tells it, the the final creation that God had made, he was amazed. In verse 23, he says, at last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she's taken from man. This first man, and he's not yet been named Adam, even though the Hebrew word is Adam. This this first man says that this one is special. This one is special because this one is like me. This one is special because this one is my equal, my partner, my helper. 
Now, intentionally, I used all three words. Our Hebrew word is ezer, which means helper. And most of our English translations translate it as helper. But we need the words partner and equal alongside helper in order for us to fully grasp what that word means. Because the word helper in English often carries with it connotations that don't exist in the Hebrew. We often read the word helper and we think of servant. The idea that that one person is in control and the other is a helper. One person is responsible and the other is a helper. But like I said, the Hebrew has no such understanding of that word. I'm no Hebrew expert, but let me tell you what I learned this week. The word ezer, the Hebrew word ezer. Are you ready? Everybody still here, yeah? A little bit? Okay, maybe, not sure. Hebrew word ezer, 21 times in the Old Testament. One of them right here. Three of them used to talk about military allies. And the other 17 times that the word Ezer is used in Hebrew is to define God in God's relationship or partnership with humans. God is the Ezer to these humans by giving them strength and power. The only 21 times it's used. Never in the Hebrew is that text used in some form of explaining a subordinate. That's never the way it's understood. And yet sometimes that's the way in which we have read Genesis chapter 2. But but we can't get that from the Hebrew. That's not the way it's used because clearly the Hebrew is not describing God as our subordinate. But instead, God is our easer. God is our helper. God provides us strength and power. So the first man is in awe. At this equal, this partner, this helper. And he's so in awe that the passage says that he responds in crazy and countercultural ways. In verse 24, it says, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united as one. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And yet, that's not at all what happened in their context. That never happened. They never did that. Men did not leave their families and join their wives and go live somewhere else. Wives left their families and came into the husband's home or came into a gathering of homes where the husband continued to live with his family. And now the wife came in under that. So this entire verse that's here that describes something happening that I've used to talk about in marriages over and over and over again. I thought, wow, what a beautiful picture. It doesn't actually say what I thought it said. There's something different going on here. So what's happening? What is it that's being explained? I think it echoes this idea of what Scazzaro calls a first ambition in our marriage. The idea that this man was so committed to this woman, that husband and wife should be so committed to one another that we're willing to abandon our legacy, our inheritance, our cultural expectations, our, our societal norms, our family, everything, and leave it behind because we are so fully committed to these two vows that we have made to God and to our spouse. So like I said, when I perform a marriage, I often read this passage. And although I have brand new understanding of it now, part of what I say to the couple in the ceremony is I say something to them that I've already told them in premarital counseling. I remind them that this relationship that they're walking into is the most important human relationship they will ever have. It's more important than the relationship that they have with mom or with dad. 
It's more important than the relationships that they have with good friends. It's more important than any relationship that they will have with children that they may or may not one day have in their marriage. Husbands, your relationship with your wife is the most important human relationship you should ever have. Wives, the human relationship that you have with your husband is the most important human relationship that should ever exist. The scriptures make that clear over and over and over again. Every other relationship, every other commitment, every other priority, every other ambition... Is to be pushed into a second or third or fourth or fifth place. If you are married, your marriage is your priority. Again, second only to your relationship with Christ. And that requires from us intentional commitment. Because marriage doesn't tend to accidentally go well. I remember when I was single, I had this idea or this understanding that deciding who I was going to marry would perhaps be the hardest thing that I did in my life. I was wrong. Deciding to get married is not the hard part. Staying married is the hard part. And staying married well is even more difficult. It's wonderful and it's beautiful, but it takes work and intentionality and commitment and focus. There are even lots of people who figure out how to stay married, but there are too few that figure out how to stay married well. This pushes in that second thing that Scazzaro talked about, first ambition, and then he says first passion. If you think back to the early days of your marriage, I suspect that many of us would tell stories of it starting with great passion, with incredible excitement and joy. There was this overwhelming feeling that we had for one another. The Oxford English Dictionary says a strong, it calls passion a strong and barely controllable emotion. Does some of you remember that? This means yes. This means no. Sitting there without moving your head means I'm not responding. I'm just going to get in trouble if I respond to this question. We've lived through this idea of being passionate. It's a fire that drives us forward. And yet that fire needs stoked. That fire needs nurtured. That fire needs commitment. There's this strange assumption that I feel like takes place in the lives of many married couples. This assumption that that this passion is something that we never have to think about. That we never have to renew. That we never have to invest in. It's just going to, to continue to be there and continue to be alive and continue to flourish. And yet that's not the way that we think about any other passion in our lives. If you're passionate about sports or a particular sport. My guess is that you watch it and you play it and you talk about it and you know all kinds of information about statistics and the right equipment to have and all that goes into continuing to develop and nurture that passion. Maybe it is that you're passionate about music 
And if so, then you probably play music and listen to music and gather around other people who have similar interests in music. Because when we have these things that we're passionate about, we do all that we can to continue to be involved in them and committed to them and to grow them and to have more understanding and to get better at them. And yet for some strange reason, when passion begins to fade in our marriage, we assume that that means that maybe we married the wrong person. That somehow this this passion is just going to take care of itself. And yet we don't do that with anything else in our life that we're passionate about. We need to invest in our marriages. We need to focus on maintaining and rebuilding passion if it's gone missing. In Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Leader book, he gives three words of encouragement for us to continue to to bring this passion in our marriage to life. The first thing he says that we should do is that we should pray for passion. That the Holy Spirit has the ability to do a miracle of restoring or maintaining or reviving a passion in our marriage. Maybe it's a passion that's missing. Maybe it's just a passion that we want to keep alive. So continually praying for that and continually asking that God would work in that and stir that. The second thing that he encourages is that we consider cultivating passion as an intentional spiritual practice. I don't think that many of us think about cultivating the passion in our marriages as a spiritual practice. And yet that's the encouragement that he has for us. That we should follow the example of the role models that we see in Genesis 2. Verse 25, do you remember it says this? Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Just reading the passage, I feel a little bit of shame standing in front of you. And yet the beauty of this passage is that the man and the woman were so connected, were so passionate, were so committed to one another that they could exist in this space and feel no shame. What would that mean if we were to begin to follow the example of that role model in our marriages? To continue to exist that way without shame. The third thing that he mentions is that we should intentionally affirm one another. This is not a gift of mine. It is so easy when we're married to recognize the flaws in our spouse. We know the chinks in their armor way more than anyone else does. We know all of the ways that they don't live up to the public reputation that they have. We know all of the ways that they disappoint us day in and day out. And the more and more that we look for those flaws, the more and more that we will find them. So the encouragement that I have that Scazzaro talks about is that you and I would look for the good in our spouse. That we would look for those things that are beautiful. That we would look for those things that are amazing. And that we would speak it into her life. Ladies, that you would remind your husband of his strengths. That you would remind him of the things that you love about him. And if we can't find those things, if we struggle looking for those good things or or finding what they are, what it is that we should affirm or what it is that we should celebrate, then my encouragement to you Speak those things into reality. 
speak them into reality in some type of prophetic sense and begin to speak celebration over the very small things that happen, knowing that as you do so, those things continue to become bigger and bigger and bigger. So if your husband has issues with leaving his laundry all over the house, but one day picks up a sock, celebrate it like it's the most amazing thing that you've ever seen. And tomorrow he'll pick up both socks. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe it's after a week or after a month, but there are these these things that we begin to live into because it felt so good to be affirmed when we did something so small. Whether it's towards your husband or it's towards your wife, speak these things into reality and over time they will grow because we want so deeply to be affirmed and appreciated by the person that we most love. The last thing I want to say this morning, and perhaps the most important thing that I think we need to hear, what has rung in my ears since the very first time that I remember hearing this Cazero speak about marriage, is the idea that if we are married, our marriage and the relationship that we live with our spouse should be our loudest gospel message. Nothing should speak the love of Jesus more boldly to our kids to our neighbors, to our friends, to our church, to the people that we see in life, whether we know them or not, nothing should speak the love of Christ more boldly than the way that we live with our spouse. The way that we love our spouse should echo the way that Jesus loves us. The way that we show grace to our spouse should echo the grace that we know that Jesus has shown to us. The way that we serve and we lead and we affirm them should echo the incredible ways in which Jesus does that for us. Friends, our marriage, if you are married, should preach God's deep, unwavering commitment to each person. If you remember last week, we talked about the idea that, that singleness, if you're single, should be your loudest gospel, mer- mer- gospel message. Because singleness preaches the breadth of God's love to all people. The message that our marriage preaches is the incredible depth of God's love for each and every individual. And our world needs to see both the breadth of God's love and the depth of God's love. Our world needs to know both. And both of these are the message of love and grace in the gospel. So married women and married men, let your ambition for your spouse be your loudest gospel message. Let your passion for your spouse be your loudest gospel message. Let your unwavering commitment to loving your spouse and it echoing Jesus' love for you and me and the world, let that be our loudest gospel message and let us pour into our marriage so deeply that it echoes the love of the gospel everywhere we go. I don't know about you, but I remember the very first time that I read this idea, what an incredible challenge it was for me. What an incredible challenge it was that the relationship that I have for Callie should speak to you the gospel more loudly than any message I ever give you sitting, standing in this position. That's simply the way in which I love Callie 
should more clearly demonstrate the love of Jesus to Emory and Wilson, to you, to our neighbors, to our community than anything else I ever do. And on most days, I am terrible at it. But I'm striving to grow at getting so much better. Because I want Callie to be my loudest gospel message, my first ambition, my greatest passion in life. Pray with me, would you? Jesus, thank you for Callie. Thank you for the chance that I have to be loved by her, to know her, to experience life with her. Thank you for the chance I have to learn to love her. Her well. God, it is my prayer that nothing would preach more loudly than the way that I love my wife. Lord, I pray for us as a body, for us as a family, and it is my prayer that the same would be true of each of us. That in each of our homes, That in all of our marriages, that those of us who are married would make sure that our marriage is our loudest proclamation of the love Christ has for the world. God, help us love one another well and help us start that at home with our husbands or our wives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.